This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Welcome to Jumping Bomb Audio. Welcome back to Jumping Bob Audio, a podcast all about Joshi Pro Wrestling. I'm Aaron. I'm joined by Taylor. How's it going, Taylor? Hi. Happy New Year. Uh, it's our happy first episode after the New Year. And it also feels like, I know it isn't because it's the same exact timing we always do. It feels like it's been a while since we've had an episode. I don't know if that's because there's just a lot going on or what, but uh, I'm glad to be back with you again in 2021. Well, a lot has happened since we last recorded. You know, I guess it was post Christmas we recorded, right? But there's been a new year. There's been, um, you know, a attempted insurrection. I mean, just lots going on in the world. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but glad to be back here and and talk some Joshi with you. Yes, I would rather talk Joshi uh, than really anything. So that's what we're going to do today. You can follow us on Twitter at JBomb Audio. I'm at Aaron Like the Car. Taylor's at Tay Mambo. Uh, you can subscribe to this podcast on any app that you use to listen to podcasts. Uh, so please do so. So you get these automatically when we release them. Uh, if you use the Apple Podcast app for your podcast, give us a five star rating and a review. Helps people find the show. Uh, you can also just please tell your friends about the show so they can uh, jump into the beautiful world of Joshi. And if you want to donate to the show, Give us a little thanks for uh, for the episodes. You can do that at redcircle.com slash shows slash jumping dash bomb dash audio. We are going to, on this show, talk about some news items. We've got uh, our big reviews, the big shows we're going to talk about, the Tokyo Joshi Pro 1-4 show, the Ice Ribbon Ribbon Mania show from 1231, and then, of course, all the normal stuff that we do, the Spark Notes. Uh, and we'll talk about some upcoming shows. But let's get started with, uh, I guess, the biggest news item that's come out. Uh, or at least it's something you know that we've talked about quite a bit on the show. So it's a, a good thing to circle back to. But apparently, Taylor, Kyrie Hojo will not be appearing at Stardom's show at uh, Nippon Budokan, Budokan uh, because, Dave Meltzer reports, she requested permission from wwe and that permission was denied so probably no Kyrie hojo yeah i guess you know when we got all the news that she would be um the ambassador or whatever her title was uh for wwe in japan i guess that means uh they still have control over her uh whole career doesn't make sense to me as most things that happen in WWE don't make sense to me. You know, my first thought was, well, let's just say she says, well, I'm going to work the show anyway. You know, I don't know if WWE is paying her very well 
to just sort of sit at home and do relatively nothing. Uh, and maybe you don't want to uh, jeopardize an easy, good payday. But seems like to me that you could probably, you know, she could work the show because what is WWE's defense? You know, oh, you work for us. Well, yes, as an ambassador, not as a wrestler anymore. I'm in a, she's in a different country. I don't know. All seems silly, but, but sort of par for the course for, you know, for WWE, just uh, taking the fun out of everything. Well, yeah, that's like the Brock Lesnar thing, right? When he originally went to work New Japan and they said no, and he just did it anyway. And they they had no response to that, basically. Uh, Because, yeah, not only is she not a wrestler, but even as a wrestler, you know, she's considered an independent contractor uh, under WWE's fraudulent scheme. So, you know, the idea would be that uh, she should be able to work elsewhere if it doesn't, uh, you know, otherwise interfere. So, yeah, they would have no... Uh, I don't believe. And, you know, maybe maybe as an ambassador, she has an actual maybe she's an actual employee. And that would, of course, change things. But, um, yeah, it'd be funny if I mean, she is a pirate. Right. So she should just work the show anyway and uh, see what happens. Well, and I've never understood, I guess, in the United States, if you were someone in the United States and you're this sort of independent contractor and you, you know, go and work somewhere else and WWE gets mad, there's at least, I guess, an argument to be made by WWE that it's, you know, you work for this company and you're, you know, doing harm because you're in the same country working for someone else, whereas I sort of get it. I don't really understand it in that case either being an independent contractor but i understand it more than being in a totally different country halfway across the world you know and it's the other thing if she is an employee of wwe as a quote-unquote ambassador that seems like it would make it easier for her to go wrestle because she would be saying well i'm not it's not like i'm going to another company and doing this job i'm doing something totally different you know, as a wrestler, because for WWE, I'm not a wrestler anymore. I'm an ambassador or whatever her, you know, sort of inside official title is. So, you know, it's all silly, but leave it to WWE to, you know, take something that could be a lot of fun and and ruin it. I'll just say from a legal perspective, there's like no argument, even inside America, for her to go work somewhere else and them say no. There's if that were ever challenged by someone who uh, was in that situation at that very time, uh, I'd be stunned if they were not able to defeat WWE's independent contractor classification of of employees. So, yeah, it's even stranger. Uh, but, yeah, the uh, of some sort of employment contract could could make that difficult. Uh, but I see what you're saying. You know, she would still be doing a different type of job. So I don't know. Anyway, the. The well, let me say this about because this has been going on or going around recently anyway about uh, anything Dave Meltzer reports on stardom. You can assume that it comes directly from Rossi Ogawa, and you can assume then that it is in the light most favorable to stardom. Anything that that comes out uh, in the Wrestling Observer newsletter 
is something that came from Dave Mel- or came from Rossi Ogawa to uh, Fumi to Dave Meltzer. So that doesn't always mean it's true. In fact, I would say that it uh, it often does not mean that it's true, but it always means that it's what the company wants to be out there in the world. So, you know, keep that in mind. Well, yeah, and I think that we've learned outside of the major the major companies of the world, you know, WWE, AEW, New Japan, and things like that. Um, Dave is often just getting whatever information he can get. I don't believe there's any, you know, real vetting going on. I don't know that he's, you know, and I'm talking about more than just stardom in this case, although stardom is included. I'm thinking about things like, you know, Lucha, where he often, you know, just goes and grabs what whatever Cubs fan is doing or, you know, Dragon Gate stuff, which is often, you know, taken from places. I don't know that there's any of sort of Dave's work in any of that information. It doesn't make it necessarily bad or wrong. You know, Cubs fan, obviously, with Lucha is a great uh, source if you're a fan of Lucha, but... I wouldn't be surprised if someone like Aaron said, he's just being told this information and it's information to have and it's information to share. So it's just going out in the way that it is presented to him. Yes. I I don't think uh, Dave is primarily like doing journalism in that way, you know, of uh, double sourcing and whatever. So uh, that doesn't mean that it's not valuable. I think it's uh, extremely valuable because it tells you something. You just have to know, you have to have an understanding of where the information is coming from so you can filter it through that process. It's the same way of like when people argue about Belzer's star ratings, it's the same thing of that where you just have to be able to filter that through what you know about Dave's uh, opinions. And so if you know where his, what his sources are and therefore what their biases are, then uh, you know, it's, you can take those bits of news information uh, and, and filter them in a way that makes them very valuable to you, I think. So Anyway, I mean, it doesn't this piece of news doesn't shock me in any any way that uh, WWE would. Of course, you know, Kyrie when she first went back to Japan was like, "Oh, I'll be able to work wherever I want to work." And so it's uh, that was funny, of course, but it's certainly not surprising that that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, and also probably informs, um, you know, partially at least why Sari, who's come back to work. I mean, at this point, pretty much every Joshi company in the entire scene in the last six months has not gone back to stardom and had that match with Mayu that was supposed to happen right before she was going to leave. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if WWE said to her, you can work anywhere except you can't work stardom because that's pretty much what she's done. She's worked, you know, Tokyo Joshi, Ice Ribbon, Seedling, Pure J, Diana. So it's pretty much everyone except stardom at this at this point. Well, another thing on that point is, you know, we they've uh, also reported recently that Riho had finished up with stardom, which I think she didn't appear on any of the New Year's shows. So that appears to be true. And uh, his reporting, at least and again, probably coming straight from the company, is that they didn't want to work with anyone who wasn't exclusive to them. You know, we know they signed people like Shuri uh, to to full contracts. So uh, it's also uh, 
perhaps possible that they're not working with Sari because uh, obviously she's not going to be able to sign an exclusive contract with them. Well, yeah, I just wonder if that falls under, if that would have fallen under something like the Marvelous deal, where obviously the Marvelous people are not working with Stardom. Now, I don't know, maybe Stardom said to themselves, okay, it's 2021 and we're not working with Marvelous anymore. Because as we've seen in the last couple of years, they tend to work with Marvelous and then Marvelous seemingly disappears off the radar until they return. Now that also could be related to Budokan trying to get, you know, someone like Chigusa on the show and, and, you know, doing her a solid before that show happens. So yeah, it, 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 it's an interesting, um, it's all interesting. It is. It's a wild world. We'll follow it through 2021. See where it goes. Uh, the, the first big show we want to talk about, let's move on over to that is Tokyo Joshi Pro's uh, January 4 show from Korokun Hall. I guess let's start, Taylor, with your uh, overall thoughts on the show. And within that, uh, well, I, I should ask you this first. Did you watch the English commentary or the Abema, uh, uh, what am I looking for, broadcast? version of the show? Yeah, broadcast. Um, yeah. Um, I did. I watched the English uh, version. I didn't even think to... Check Abema because I just went on Wrestle Universe because I'm so trained to, you know, go there for new DDT and Tokyo Joshi shows. And it was the first thing that popped up. And I was more than happy to because I actually did um, want to check it out. So I did I did watch the, the full show um, with the English commentary. What about you, Aaron? Yes, I also watched the English commentary. Like you, I just kind of think to if I'm going to watch Tokyo Joshi, I go to Wrestle Universe. And also, uh, I was just curious to see what it would be like with English commentary. So uh, I wonder what were your overall thoughts on the show. But in in that, I hope you'll include your thoughts on uh, the commentary. Well, I guess I'll start with the commentary. And I I will say over my general sort of impression of it was that I was I was very pleased um, with it. I don't know. um, Or I guess I should say, you know, some of this English commentary um, stuff with these Japanese promotions can be a bit hit and miss. I mean, even with something as big as, you know, New Japan, when they were starting off, we, you know, anyone who was watching those English broadcasts, remember that it was quite a lot of growing pains with them, with getting the right team, you know, getting people who had a good flow or had good things to say or were helpful on commentary. And they tried a number of different people for the first, you know, many months of, or even, you know, first few years of having English commentary before they finally settled on the team they have now. So I was actually pleasantly surprised that I thought overall it was a very good um, English presentation. I think one big strength is, and especially with Tokyo Joshi, where there's a lot of talking in the ring, you know, you have, someone like Hyper Masao, whose matches are very heavy on sort of explanation and dialogue. And it was helpful to have someone on commentary who could in the moment translate that um, to the people watching. I think that's a hugely invaluable skill to have um, for someone on commentary. And I thought that they did very well getting, you know, explaining who everyone was talking about the matches 
I guess if I had any drawbacks, there would probably only be two. One of which is that, you know, some of it did come off at times sort of like reading, you know, a list of facts. And I'm thinking of, especially at the beginning of matches, you know, you have someone come out and you say, okay, this person is, you know, Mizuki and Mizuki, you know, two years ago challenged for this title. And then six months ago challenged for this title. And then four months ago challenged for this. And it, sort of in those moments felt a little bit like, you know, I'm sort of reading off a list of facts instead of sort of letting, you know, the, it sort of naturally flow. And the other sort of drawback that I had was I thought they all did very well, but in a three person booth as it was, it felt like they struggled to sort of define who was who in the, you know, calling of matches and the discussion of matches, you know, who's doing more play-by-play, who's doing more color commentary, X, Y, and Z. But overall, I thought it was a very strong, especially for the first time out. I really, really do hope that Tokyo Joshi um, is able and willing to bring them back because I think that those things that I talked about as sort of the negatives are things that could easily be improved upon with more time together in the booth, more shows underneath their belt. I don't know what the, you know, numbers look like on Wrestle Universe. I know that Tokyo Joshi did tweet out saying that, you know, our decision to do more English commentary will be based on how many people watch um, this one. So I'm hoping that a lot of people, even longtime fans like the two of us, did watch the English commentary. So I hope a lot of longtime fans also watch the English commentary because I think for this promotion where there's a lot going on, a lot with characters, a lot with dialogue, you know, it's not necessarily a straightforward, the action happens in the ring sort of promotion. I think English commentary is very helpful and I think they did a good job. Yeah. The biggest, I agree with, pretty much everything that you said uh, as far as the positives and the negatives of what they did. Uh, The biggest positive I would add is that even though it was like uh, three dudes and I think the, the two dudes that weren't Chris Brooks are like MMA guys, they have MMA backgrounds. uh, But I thought they were able to maintain the spirit of the promotion. You know, they were, they didn't try to present it like it was, you know, 90s all Japan, uh, since it's not, it's a fun product, right? And I thought they were fun. At t- I mean, it was a little stilted. They could have uh, <laughs> opened up a little more. But like you said, that's maybe something that would come with more time. But I thought they were able to capture that spirit uh, in a decently effective way. And thank God Chris Brooks was there because Chris Brooks gave a lot of color uh, to things, especially... You know, you could tell that Chris Brooks watches the promotion, or at least he went back and watched a ton to get ready for this uh, for this job. Uh, and he was able to to fit in things that I thought added uh, a dimension that the other guys were not able to add. Yeah, and I think I do agree. It's a little bit of a tricky. I mean, I think personally, it would be a tricky promotion to do commentary for, because because it, it isn't a straight sort of in ring. You know, you can just sit there and be like, okay, I'm going to talk about the moves and this is going to be hard hitting. And you're trying to get over these sort of varied 
characters that come in the ring very quickly to new fans who are saying, well, who is this person? And you have a lot of people on the show. I mean, you have matches with six people and you're trying to sort of introduce a new audience to all of these, you know, varied people, you know, sort of very quickly. So I think it, it was a tough task, certainly tougher than probably some other promotions would be where you can lean more on talking about sort of what's going on in ring wise, the moves and things like that. So yeah, I, like I said, at the end of the day, I really do hope they come back. I think it would be, you know, I hope the numbers justify it out, but I think long-term it would be helpful. I mean, I think it would be helpful for any promotion if they're able to have English commentary because at the very worst, no one is no sort of Western fan is going to say, Oh, this promotion has English commentary and say no, as opposed to if they didn't have English commentary, it can only be a benefit for them and really not a drawback. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Otherwise, like presentation wise, I'm not sure there was anything uh, notable, uh, you know, comparing it to any of their other one, four shows. I think it was, you know, pretty on par with what they usually do presentation wise. Uh, But overall, then what were your, what were your thoughts on the show? The actual, you know, the matches of the show. I thought it was a really strong show. You know, it's so funny because we, we've spent a lot of time talking about Tokyo Joshi on this podcast and talking a lot about how, you know, they're not an in-ring, you know, it's very character-based, it's not in-ring, but they've now done two major shows in a row, you know, Wrestle Princess and this show, that I've thought the wrestling has been very strong on both shows, obviously sort of led by two strong um, main events, but also a lot of good matches on the undercard as well, and I think part of it is that we've talked about they've lost some people to stardom or they let them go or whatever the terminology is. And I think that's allowed them to sort of try new people, but also that some people who maybe were sitting there going, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of on the middle of the car and, and, but there's so many people here and I can't really make my mark are now saying, well, now I can, you know, now I have a, now I have space. I can really go for it and try and make my mark and really stand out in this company. So I think that they've done two really strong shows in a row and I'm really interested to see their February Corican to see if, you know, is it just that these two shows, they're their biggest shows, you know, obviously one four is one of their biggest shows of the year. Wrestle princess was one of their biggest shows ever. If not the biggest show ever, was it just the case of they got, you know, two shows in a row with big stakes and people really performed, or is this really a, slow and steady climb as this roster really improves in ring. Yeah, I do think it's interesting. We'll probably talk about this with some of the later matches on the card. But yeah, just seeing it's always exciting. And maybe, you know, even though the people that largely left from Tokyo Joshi weren't exactly, you know, main eventers or anything. But when you open up spots and then you get to shuffle new people into different spots. It's always interesting to see how those people respond. Uh, Yuki Kamafuku, who I'm sure we'll talk about later, I think is uh, a a success story of like trying someone in a new spot and it just like absolutely taking and working really well. 
So that's just something that happens sometimes when you get to mix up the roster a little bit. So I agree with you that this was not only a strong in-ring show, but it showcased the growth that the companies had uh, over the last year or so. All right, it kicked off with a debut. So we're adding a new person to the roster as Suzume defeated Arisu Endo. Um, honestly, I don't. Chris Brooks mentioned this on commentary also, but uh, I, and I didn't go back and you know watch every debut, but this felt like one of the best Tokyo Joshi debuts that they've ever had. Yeah, I think it was also largely helped by, and again, I didn't go back and, and research this, but I feel like a lot of recent, more recent debuts have happened in six-person tags, eight-person tags, you know, sort of multi-person situations where you see someone for a little bit, you know, maybe a minute or two, then they tag out or they leave the ring and then they maybe come in for a little bit more. I really enjoyed getting to see someone just sort of in a singles match, one-on-one, and really see them as a performer as opposed to just sort of getting a, you know, here's a little bit of them, a couple minutes. That may speak to their confidence in Endo over some other people who maybe they said, we'll just stick them in a tag so that they can just get out there and we can, you know, move on from there. But I I also thought it was, you know, very good. and also. a feather in the cap for Suzume who, you know, was sort of given this opportunity to work with someone debuting, even though she as well is still very um, young. So, you know, sort of a credit to both of them. I think the big news coming out of it is going to be about Endo, of course, because it's her debut match, but also um, very good for Suzume to get the opportunity and really perform well in the situation. See, I think that's interesting because when I saw that it was a singles match for a debut, I kind of thought, oh, you might want to use her in a, a tag or a multi. I thought about, you know, Shiori Sena debuting at 1-4 last year, and I believe that was a tag match. And so it kind of helps someone to, you know, cover up their their uh, shortcomings a little. And they just threw her out there and, and they did, you know, like a six minute match or whatever. And uh, but maybe you're right. It it made her kind of have to step up to the plate in a different way. But I I do think that even just based on this one match that Endo, they probably did have a lot of confidence in her because she seems to be honestly ahead of of some of the people at the lower end of the card already. She just seems to be a pretty strong wrestler uh, for her experience. Yeah, I just wonder, it would be interesting to pick, you know, whoever's brain and say, was she put in a singles match? Because that's the way it just sort of worked out in terms of the card, the building of the card. Or was she put in a singles match because there was confidence that, oh, this is someone we have, you know, not a superstar right off the bat, but this is someone we have confidence can go out there, perform in a singles match right off the bat and, and really impress. So I'll be interested to see. Um, you know, not only how she performs, but also how she's booked, you know, moving forward. Is this someone the company really is going to, you know, move up the card sort of quickly? Or do they now say, okay, she got a singles match. So now we'll keep her in the bottom of the card and put her in some tags and six person matches and things like that. Next up, we had Moka Miyamoto and Yuna Manase defeating Haruna Neko and Pam Harajuku. Uh, Yuna Manase was replacing Marika Kobashi, who tested positive for COVID and so had to be replaced. Uh, Yuna got the pen here. She pinned Palm in a, in a fine little match. Yeah, I guess my biggest takeaway was, you know, Marika was replaced um, with a positive 
COVID and everyone else on the roster was announced as having tested negative, um, which I guess is very lucky because there was certainly certainly a world where she tests positive and a lot of other people test positive. And then I don't I don't even know what this card looks like if you get, you know, three or four other people who test positive. So very lucky there. Um, as to the match itself, don't have too many um, thoughts. Good to see uh, Yuna, you know, under unfortunate, circ- unfortunate, unfortunate circumstances, um, get a match on a big show like this. And then we had the, uh, I don't know, maybe now annual Hyper Masao versus Shoko Nakajima. Uh, I'm not sure what the official title is, but basically your name is on the line match. You have to get renamed if you lose the match. And, uh, you know, kind of... A goof, it was a ladder match last year, so there's just kind of like a goofy thing uh, put into it. And I mean goofy in the best possible way. And this year, the stipulation was that there were, uh, as they said regularly on commentary, gotcha capsules uh, all around the ring tied to the top rope. And basically, you had to find the winning two winning gotcha tickets uh, to, to win the match. And uh, that's what happened here. Uh, Hyper Masao avenged her defeat from 2019 or I guess 2020 and uh, found the two winning Gasha tickets. Yeah, sort of hard to talk about this one as a wrestling match because there wasn't all together. The match went 11 minutes and probably, oh, I don't know, three minutes of that was some sort of wrestling. Uh, most of it was, you know, tying each other up or opening uh, capsules. It was... You know, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Um, uh, and I don't know if I have anything more to say. I enjoyed it, and it was fun, but hard to sort of speak about in terms of, you know, what I thought of, of the wrestling. Yeah, well, yeah, the match isn't really about that, uh, but it was a lot of fun to me, which is obviously the point is what they're going for. Um, you had, I mean, I thought it was cool, you know, to, for the finish where Masao just kind of like, tighter up they had they were also attached it was like a bull rope match also in that they were uh attached at the wrist to uh a rope and uh so then you know shoko tried to raise that at the end that actually the the rope broke or messed up you know and and so the match shouldn't count so she shouldn't have to change her name uh but of course she is gonna have to change her name i didn't write down the name and now i feel uh like a dummy for not having done i believe it's shin ultra shoko that's right she I believe because she just debuted on the um, on yesterday's um, Tokyo Joshi Show, teaming with Hyper Masao, two two superheroes teaming together. That's right. So you know, a new thing. I think uh, it lasts for a month, right? You have to have the new name for a month. Yeah, um, a month. Yeah. So this was good. Uh, next up, we had Mirai Mayumi, Miyu Watanabe, and now Kakuta defeating Ajakong Mizuki and. Raku, uh, we had uh, Miyu Watanabe got the pin, which would be important later. Uh, she pinned Raku. Yeah, uh, a very fun match. I was really, obviously, the the big spot of the match for me and probably for a lot of people was Mirai blasting Aja Kong with a lariat, um, taking her down. I actually think multiple lariats taking her down. Uh, that was really the highlight of the matches. I think Mirai continues to look better and better each time she uh, comes out. And then in the post-match, Aja Kong 
uh, talking about possibly in the future having a singles match with Raku, which Raku uh, was quite surprised to hear about. Um, but a fun match, and um, we got to see the Goodnight Express, which now is officially the only, the official and only Goodnight Express wrestling move in the world, as FTR has renamed their Goodnight Express. Uh, to Big Rig in honor of Brody Lee. So um, Raku reigns supreme again as the queen of the Goodnight Express. Well, look, you know, when you represent a client legally, a lot of uh, confidence is attached. So uh, I don't want to say too much, but I'll just say that um, Raku wins. Uh, We have been able to secure the exclusive rights to the use of the move name, the Goodnight Express. And maybe when Raku beats Aja Kong, she will start using a trash can uh, <laughs> in her in her matches as a weapon. Uh, but it's got to be it's got to be whatever trash can is like in the um, in the bathroom on like a Shinkansen. You know, it yeah. has to, we have to tie in that train train thing for Raku. Uh, yeah, the the Mirai Lariat ruled. Uh, seeing Aja Kong do the Oyasumi Express again ruled. Uh, everything was good. I just uh, a little bit disappointed. You know, a big show, and you got uh, Mizuki here on the what fourth match on the show in a six woman tag. Just would have liked to have seen her in a in a bigger spot on this show. Uh, then we had a big tag match with uh, Sakisama and Mei San Michelle uh, defeating. Hikari Noah and Sena Shiori uh, may got the submission on Shiori. Yeah, another uh, good match is uh, the, I guess, well, not new Neo Bishiki Goon, but I guess sort of new, uh, continue to win. It certainly seems like, I don't know, Aaron, if you disagree, that they are heading towards a uh, tag title match. It certainly would seem that way and would probably be a good idea. Uh, but, you know, as I've said before, Mason Michelle, uh, an excellent uh, sort of pickup for Tokyo Joshi, exactly what they're looking for. A great character, but also a, a fantastic wrestler as well. So another match that I uh, really enjoyed. Uh, I do agree that they seem to be going toward a tag title shot. Honestly, I was surprised they didn't come out after the title match uh, to challenge. Uh, and as far as I know, that hasn't been announced yet as a match, but uh, I expect that we will see that. Couldn't agree more about May. Uh, she kind of is the perfect fit for the promotion in a lot of ways in that she immediately is able to do, you know, the the fun stuff. She immediately understands the spirit of the promotion and is already like really high level at doing that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, she's also a really good wrestler. And uh, probably, I don't know, one of the top five wrestlers in the company immediately upon upon being there. Uh, and I, I mean, just in ring, uh, one of the top five, I would say. And you're probably mad at me for just saying five, if I had to guess. But um, that was probably, I liked this match a lot. Uh, we got to see uh, Shiori Sena and the you know, you really get to capture because it's one year from her debut, the progress that she's made in that year. Uh, my, the only downside to the match to me, was just like may is a great wrestler. I would have liked to seen her get to do a little more wrestling in the match, 
but hard to complain when she does like the great uh, tray spot. I mean, she's so good at uh, selling all that. So uh, I don't want to complain too much, but that would be my only complaint about the match. Then we had uh, Maki Ito versus Miyu Yamashita. Uh, Miyu got the win with a, a spinning kick that knocked Maki out. She was unable to answer the 10 count. Yeah, really interesting match. I really enjoyed this match. I thought it was really good. Um, Maki Ito, someone who's come a, a very long way in terms of the in-ring work. You know, I think there was a time when the thought was that maybe she was had sort of hit her ceiling as a great character who was sort of a, you know, passable in-ring worker. I think that she's gotten a lot better. Um, and this match is really proof of that. I thought it was an excellent match. I went four and a quarter stars on it. So I really enjoyed it. Uh, I guess my only questions are in the booking, which is that, you know, Maki loses. Now, obviously, she beat Miyu um, a couple weeks before um, with her with her rolling, her Ito Royale uh, figure four pinning combination. So she did get to win. But on the big stage here, she loses. And I'm just wondering, going forward, sort of what is the Maki Ito story? Uh, we've had sort of for a while now the story of Ito, who is, you know, very resilient and fighting hard, but seemingly can't get um, over the hump. And that seems to sort of continue the story where I thought that maybe they would have had her win. And then the story becomes, you know, it's not a title match. So she doesn't automatically become, you know, a title holder, but maybe she finally says, okay, I've beaten me and I've gotten over this hump of, you know, I can't finish matches. I can't come out the winner, uh, but didn't happen that way. So I'm curious to see what sort of her storylines look like going forward, whether she's going to continue to be sort of stuck in this, you know, can't get over the hump sort of that's going to be her character or if there is going to be some progression into finally sort of moving on to the next phase. Yeah, because at some point you end up running the risk of making people uh, stop caring about whether she can win the big one, right? Uh, and I, I don't think they're anywhere near that with Maki at this point. She's still very popular, but you have to strike at the right time with someone like that. And perhaps they're thinking, uh, you know, the time to strike is uh, is post-COVID uh, when the crowds can be a little better. But uh, that is something that concerns you. But the match itself, as you said, was excellent. Uh, just brutal kicks. Uh, Miyu, such a great striker. Uh, so that was fun. Uh, I mean, you've you've captured how good the match was. Uh, the real question is just, yeah, where Maki Ito goes from here. But also, I guess, does does Miyu catapult herself back into, you know, the title picture somewhere? I'm also interested to see that going forward. Well, and we did talk about when we previewed the show about how, you know, where does Miyu sort of land in this company now, now that she's not holding the title? You know, I think we both thought that Ito might win, which would have been another loss for Miyu. Uh, but now she has that win, so maybe, you know, maybe she goes back up the card or maybe this is just a win to sort of keep her, you know, at that level and not give her so many sort of losses in a row that that she sort of starts to sink down the card or sort of loses her value as a as a big, you know, a big person to beat in the company. We had the princess tag team 
title match. Uh, the Bakuretsu sisters retained as they defeated uh, Yuki Kamafuku and Mahiro Kiru. Uh, Naroka Tenma pinned Kiru with the kill shot. I have to say, I don't know what it is, but the Bakuretsu sisters, their matches, I watch them and they end and I seemingly have really nothing to say about them. I don't really feel all that positively or negatively about really any of their matches. And this sort of continued that trend where I sort of watched the match. And at the end, I was like, what did I think about this match? And I didn't really have anything to say. I don't know what it is about um, them or their matches. Like I said, I don't dislike them. I don't leave the matches going, oh, terrible. I just sort of leave the matches going, okay, that's a wrestling match that I just watched. And, you know, then the next match comes on. So I don't really have all that much to say about this, um, except that I was sort of um, agnostic about the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm much higher on on Yuki Aino as a singles wrestler than I am on this on this tag. And I know this tag team is very popular, so I feel like I'm uh, the low man on this tag a lot. Um, but I don't know. They're okay. Uh, there was the really cool spot in this match with, uh, Yuki trying to do the famouser, but they countered it into the Bakaretsu bulldog. I thought that was really cool. Uh, and as we talked about earlier, the, you know, Kamiyu's push is cool. Uh, seeing her in this new spot. Uh, I think it's working. Uh, I'm enjoying it. It seemed like the crowd is enjoying it and it's just fun to see somebody new. Uh, it is, I did see some people asking about like, why does she come out to the old McDonald had a farm song? <laughs> and that does get stranger, I guess, as she gets more featured, uh, in the promotion. It was funny to, as she came out, hear the English commentary go, ah, yes, coming out to the wonderful sounds of old McDonald had a farm. <laughs> uh, Yuki Kamafuku. It's just funny to hear someone, you know, on the, on you know, commentary actually talk about it and say, oh, of course, coming out to, you know, old McDonald. Um, so, yeah, I don't think you could ever really change it, though, because it feels like part of her. But, yeah, it is a bit bit strange. It's just really funny to think about her coming out at like a Wrestle Princess where she's challenging for the title, you know, for like the princess or princess title. And it's like this, you know, big fight feel. And she comes out to old McDonald. Very funny. It's 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 a thing that to me is very sort of Joshi that if you watch Joshi, if you follow it, you know, it sort of just becomes a thing that it is her, ent- you know, it is her entrance music. That's what it is. But I think to someone coming in, it it really is sort of bizarre and, and maybe a little bit shocking. OK, the main event, the Princess of Princess title match, uh, at least to me, a shocking result as Rika Tatsumi defeated Yuka Sakazaki to become the new Princess of Princess champion uh, by ref stoppage while Yuka was in a figure four. Yeah, a shocking result to me as well with a sort of, um, I don't know if this is the word, is a strange, a strange sort of end to the match. I really liked a lot of this match. Um, I liked, you know, it sort of started off with the, with the legwork um, on Yuka that seemingly didn't work because it happened for a little bit and then Yuka sort of shook it off and it seemed like it wasn't going to be anything. And then late in the match, 
uh, Yuka went to go hit that magical girl splash, came down on the leg, and it seemingly came back up again, which I thought was a really cool thing where it wasn't sort of a consistent selling of the leg. And by consistent, I mean over a period of time, not that she was being inconsistent, but just that it wasn't sort of a prolonged selling of the leg, but it was that they, that Rika had done the work early in the match and it came back near the end of the match. They had the sequence with Rika um, doing those dragon screws in the ropes late in the match that looked really uh, brutal and aggressive, which I really liked. Um, I just found the, the end was just sort of, um, it was just sort of strange to me because she was in this figure four. Yuka was sort of moving around. There was some sort of movement where she was clearly attempting to get to the rope um, or trying to get to the ropes to break the hold. She seemingly stopped for a minute and then the match ended. And I also think it was not helped by that it was clear to me as well that the English commentary didn't know what really had happened either, that they said, oh, it's over. And in fact, Chris Brooks came on commentary after sort of the show had ended and Miyu came out and made her challenge and said, oh, by the way, I asked um, the ref and he said he, it was his decision to stop the match. There wasn't a tap. And so that I sort of just found a bit confusing. I guess part of it is maybe you you have that out to say, well, Yuka didn't tap, you know, so you don't have that sort of visible loss for her, but it just didn't seem, you know, I understand booking a a match with a ref stoppage. It just, it just didn't seem in that moment to be something that realistically a ref would look at and say, oh, she can't continue. You know, she was moving around. She was trying to get to the rope. She had just stopped. You know, but she hadn't been sitting there for three or four minutes. It was just for about 30 seconds or so. But at the end of the day, I still really enjoyed the match. I thought it was really good. I was sort of torn because there was a moment when Rika was doing those dragon screws in the ropes that I was like, yeah, this is really great. This is really great. And then at the end, I sort of waffled. You know, I, at first I said, oh, it's four and a quarter. And I wrote that down and then I changed it to four and a half. And then I went back and changed it back to four and a quarter because I was just, you know, I think the end sort of just confused me enough that it took the match down a little bit for me. Yeah, it was interesting in that as you're watching the match, I kept thinking that Yuka Sakazaki was pretty clearly the, the better worker of the two, just on a, on a different level than Rika. But at the same time, I think the match... Uh, and the finish, especially, and and frankly, Rika's title win were all poorly served by by Yuka's uh, leg selling. I know you thought I was going to talk about her leg selling on this on this episode, uh, and I have to because exactly like you said early on, you had the really uh, brutal uh, limb work, and I thought Rika did a great job. But honestly, Rika did a great job on the limb work throughout the whole match. You know, it always looked good. But uh, I thought it just like, oh, that wasn't really going to play in later early on because she because uh, you could just kind of shook it off and, and kept going on. But obviously, uh, Rika kept coming back and back to it over and over. And, you know, they knew going into the match that the finish was going to be uh, this rough stoppage on the leg stuff. And I'm not sure there was a moment where Yuka really sold that she was uh, in a lot of pain or having trouble 
moving around or any of that. You know, it just all uh, came on so quickly. And it's not like Tokyo Joshi is like a uh, an Enochiist, uh promotion <laughs> where it's like common to see uh, a kind of out of nowhere finish where it's like, oh, damn, there's just no way for me to get out of this figure four. So, you know, what am I going to do? Uh, otherwise, you know, that would have been a cool finish. But obviously it was supposed to play up on the progressive damage to the leg. And I'm not sure you could did uh, a great job of getting that story across. Uh, that said, like that's pro- that's the biggest downfall of the match. And it does bring it down uh, quite a bit in my eyes. Uh, but something that really played in its favor was just like the great pacing of this match. Only about a 19 and a half minute match. But even a match with a lot of limb work, uh, it never felt super slow. It was always uh, going at a good pace. They escalated it well. It peaked. Um, I mean, that's about the time where you would have wanted the finish to come, even I thought the finish was a little strange. So, you know, was, they did a great job of pacing it. Uh, but I love Yuka. But if she had sold this leg, this would have been like uh, a truly great match, I think. Yeah, and it's also interesting that you say that because I actually specifically remember there was the the period of time and near the beginning of the match where I think they were outside the ring for a little bit and Yuka was having her leg worked on and then they came back in the ring and Yuka went on offense and someone on commentary, I don't even remember who it was, said something to the effect of, oh, Rika's been working on Yuka's legs, but it doesn't look like it worked. Um or, or something, you know, similar, sort of similar to that. And I don't know if, you know, I don't know what commentary was told before the show. I don't know if they were told anything at all. I know that some promotions, when they have English commentary, just sort of throw the people out there and say, say what you want. You know, and that was sort of something where at that moment when they said, well, it looked like it didn't work in my mind, I sort of went, okay, well, that's sort of, that's done now. The leg selling or the leg work didn't work on Yuka. So that's now to the side. And it wasn't until she sort of stumbled on that magical girl splash um, that I even thought of it again. So I, I think that also goes hand in hand with your thing where the leg I I do think the ref stoppage would have had to be at a point where her legs were so bad that even if she's close to the ropes, that the fact that she's in it and she's been affected so much means that, you know, the, that would be a reason for the ref to stop where in, in this case, it didn't really look that way because Yuka was still, I mean, I think she had gotten out of the figure four at least one other time in the match. She was very close to the ropes so, so yeah, I, I do think that that brought it down a little bit. And it was sort of a, an interesting finish for a company like, like Tokyo Joshi, which is usually not this sort of serious in-ring um, type of stuff. Yeah, you're exactly right. You have to smarten up the announcers on the finish because you could have covered for some of Yuka's uh, lack of selling with the story that the that the announcers were telling uh, and they would have probably been much more on top of that figure four, you know, being able to get that story across of like, oh, wow, she's really in danger here. You know, like 
because they would know <laughs> what the finish was. They obviously they didn't know the finish because uh, Chris Brooks didn't even realize that he needed to get it over as a ref stoppage versus a submission. So uh, certainly, you know, it's their first time using English uh, commentators, and you know, I don't know what percentage of their fans they anticipate uh, listening on English commentary. But, uh, you know, I think back to like that first Wrestle Kingdom that Jim Ross did the announcing on, you know, and he obviously didn't know anything and wasn't clued in on anything at all. I mean, Jim Ross rarely knows anything, obviously, when he does commentary. But clearly their shows improved when they got this. They got the team of like uh, Kevin Kelly and whoever else he's been working with who who are clued in to what story they're supposed to be getting over. So, I mean, it's just a really important part of of wrestling commentary. Well, yeah. And they, you know, they didn't know. So I think in a way, the way that they called it, not knowing what the finish was going to be, not knowing that this is where they were leading is actually the correct way to, you know, sort of call the match because in that case, your job as commentary is to sort of cover for what's happening in the ring. Obviously, if you know what's going to happen, you should be trying to lead the you know viewer into whatever that would be. And if they would have known, they could have talked about, oh, her leg is being worked on. But if they don't know and you see someone and all of a sudden they're not selling a leg, your job as commentator is to say, well, it looked like it didn't have an effect because that then covers and explains to the viewer why all of a sudden this thing that we've just seen for five minutes, you know, this leg work you know, what's going on? I thought she just had her leg work on. Well, it looked like it didn't really work. It wasn't all that effective. So they, it isn't a criticism of the commentary team, and I don't mean it to sound that way. It is the correct thing to do in the case where they didn't know that this was all leading to the match getting stopped because her legs were so injured. No, I completely agree. They they did it the right way. It's just unfortunate that they weren't smartened up to the finish. Uh, let's talk about Rika Tatsumi as the champion. Uh, I think we were both surprised that, that she won. Uh, but do you have any thoughts about, uh, well, I guess, A, her as champion, or B, where this might be going? I mean, I really don't know where it's going because I was very surprised by the result. You know, it's not a totally out of left field thing. I think Rika is, I think probably most people would probably agree that she's near the top you know, probably not at the top of the company in terms of ring work, but she's at least near the top. She's sort of in that top group, you know, Yuka, Miyu, you know, I think Rika is one. They had that sort of five-way match that Rika won to get this opportunity, and that was sort of the five big people in the company. So it isn't a total, you know, it isn't someone who's been in the mid-card their whole life winning the title. Um I don't really know, and maybe this will become clear as, you know, we see some more title uh, matches with her as champion, sort of what the story is, because I don't know, you know, the other part of this is that Mizuki losing to Yuka, you know, some of the thought there for me at least was, well, they really like Yuka as champion. They really want her to be champion, but obviously now that isn't the case you know, because Rika beat her. So it's it's just a thing where I don't think it's a negative thing, but I don't quite yet clearly see what this sort of story is 
of sort of all of these individual decisions haven't all come together for me as like, oh, the story they're telling is this. Uh, Miyu Watanabe is going to be the next challenger at their February 11 show. I certainly don't expect Miyu uh, to win. She doesn't feel like she's quite uh, on that level yet. Um, I don't know. An interesting thing to me, I think, is the idea of Mizuki somehow beating Rika for the title. And then Yuka has to win the Princess Cup to like get another shot at the title. That's kind of a fun story to me, I think. Uh, but, you know, I have no idea. I, I like you. I don't really have a good sense of, of where it's going just yet. Yeah, and maybe part of it is that now all of a sudden, you know, neither of us thought she was winning. And now every match, you know, you say, well, Miyu is probably not going to win. But I don't know. Maybe she does because we've just seen we didn't think Rika, Rika uh, was going to win. And, and she did. So, you know, there is value also to that, to not sort of having a champion that just sort of goes along and says, okay, you're out, you're out, you're out. And then getting to you know, the one person where they really build it up and you say, oh, this is probably the person who's going to beat them. So there is, you know, separate value in that, separate from whatever, you know, the story is they're going to to tell with her. Um, but yeah, certainly not someone I'm sitting here and going, oh boy, this this might be iffy. I think she'll probably have good matches, um, good title matches uh, with whoever she faces. I think the match with Miu will be very good. Um, and, and, and we will see a lot of sort of interesting questions now moving forward, as we talked about, you know, they have more Korokins this year, Tokyo Joshi does, um, seeing how they fill those, seeing how the shows go, how people do in ring. And now this sort of new top title reign, uh, a lot of, a lot of interesting questions to be answered in 2021. All right. Well, should we move on then to the next show? We're going to talk about the ice ribbon ribbon mania show. Let's do it. Okay, this one's a little older, so we'll probably uh, not go as long as we did talking about the Tokyo Joshi Pro Show, uh, but we want to get to it anyway. So we had uh, the joint army team of uh, Bonnie Oikawa. I'm not. I'm never really sure how to pronounce that. Oikawa, Oikawa. That's what I'm going to go with. Uh, Batsuya Uno, Rina Shingaki, Te Hanma. Uh, they defeated Miku Aono, uh, Ram Kaicho, Sasuke Totoro, and Yappy. Uno tapped out Ram Kaicho. Yeah, and they actually this week announced the Ice Ribbon Awards for 2020 and uh, Joint Army. I'm trying to remember what the name of the award was, but one sort of a special award as a group. And I think that they had, you know, obviously they lost their leader in Shuri, who went to stardom. But I think that this has been a really fun um, unit for Ice Ribbon. Um, it's sort of different than what a lot of the rest of the roster is doing with this sort of more submission-based style. You know, this was sort of a short, quick opener, get some people on their big end-of-the-year card. But um, just got a shout-out, Join Army, who I think have been have been really great. Shout out to join army. Uh, the thing I really liked from this was that spot where uh, Tai Hama was on the top turnbuckle and they threw someone into her and she just like immediately uh, turned it into a cross arm breaker. It's just like a fun Tai Hama spot. That's all. Uh, Yuki Mashiro in the second match, Yuki Mashiro defeated. Now Ishikawa uh, rolled her up for uh, another fun little match. I thought. Yeah, it certainly seems like uh, Yuki is, 
uh, growing a following, uh, certainly with the gotcha uh, belt that she has. And so it'll be interesting to see if that translates, obviously beating uh, now who uh, debuted sort of is her elder, you know, barely. Um, So interesting to see Yuki get the win here, but it could be a case of they've seen that she's sort of made this connection with the crowd, uh, which of course is always important in wrestling and, and seeing where they go with her. So, you know, we will see could just be, you know, they have their two younger wrestlers in and they got to give one the win. So they give it to Yuki, but who knows? We had uh, Hamako Hoshi, Nane Takahashi and Sukasa Fujimoto defeating Ibuki Hoshi, Rina Yamashita and Sukushi Haruka. Yeah. I thought this match was really, really great. And I thought that this sort of kicked off the, I mean, it's hard to say after only two matches, you know, before it, but sort of kicked off the big second half of the card, which I thought was really strong. Um, I think Ibuki Hoshi is, you know, we spent a lot of time in the sort of wrapping up 2020, talking about who could sort of break out in 2021. And I actually think Ibuki Hoshi is someone who definitely could. Um, This match was really great. And actually um, the Yokohama show that happened yesterday for Ice Ribbon on the 9th, January 9th, uh, she was in a tag match with Seri and Sakasha Fujimoto, uh, teaming with Suzu Suzuki, which is another match that I thought was really good. I thought Hoshi showed a lot of really uh, great fire, um, great in-ring work. So I think that she's someone who could really sort of sneakily have a really great 2021. This match was part of it because I thought that this match was really fun. Obviously, um, with the names in it that you have, obviously, Nanai appearing um, in Ice Ribbon, Fujimoto, you know, Rina, Sakushi, all really great names, very talented workers, and I thought that this was a super fun match. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I thought uh, Nanai here was excellent, probably the star. She had excellent segments with every opponent on on the other side, although I thought uh, Tsukushi probably had the best segment with Nanai, uh, or just generally had the best segments other than Nanai. And then uh, Tsuka was also excellent in the closing stretch. Yeah, just a very good match. It was a lot of fun. Next up was the Fantast Ice title death match with Lisa Sera uh, defending against uh, Akane Fujita and, of course, getting the win, retaining her title she won after a diving knee strike uh, onto uh, Fujita, who was on concrete blocks, and there was a board of microphones also involved. So uh, quite the finish. Yeah, I actually thought, you know, the match started, and I thought, oh, this is kind of, you know, a little bit slow. I don't know. And then I don't even remember what point it was, but all of a sudden really the sort of brutality ramped up. You talked about they had these concrete blocks and they were, you know, putting them on each other and then smashing them. And they had Legos, I think at one point that they were, you know, that were in the ring. And I thought it just really, the brutality of it kept ramping up and up and up. And really, I got really drawn in um, and I thought it was super fun you know, it's a definite change of pace, you know, on the card, especially, you know, the match before was sort of these very talented, straightforward 
very talented wrestlers having a straightforward match, and the two matches after that were the same way. So I thought it was a really great change of pace. Thought it was really well worked, really built to a strong conclusion, uh, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I don't know, a little gentle for me <laughs> as a death match. <laughs> I wanted more, more blood, more violence. You know, that, I guess that's just me. You thought it got a little brutal. I really didn't, didn't hit that for me. Interesting. So <laughs> I don't know. I just see concrete blocks, and I'm like, no, nah, not for me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I, I mean, I didn't want, I'm like, I don't want those on me. I didn't want any of that to happen to me, but like, um, like the, the thumbtack, uh, bat, you know, I, she was like so gentle putting that, uh, into Fujita's head, as I recall. And then like they had the little, the strips of thumbtacks. It was just like, very, let me very gently like push this onto you. You know, it's like, I don't know. I'm more used to seeing death matches where the, the combatants clearly have, uh, no regard for themselves or their opponent. Uh, and that's, I enjoy that. If I'm going to watch a death match, uh, I want to uh, be very concerned about everyone's health. They did have a shot um, of Fujita. I think it was Fujita after the match, sort of, they went back and they had it on Twitter, I think, where they were talking about, oh, Risa Sarah won, uh, Fujita lost. And her back just was looked ripped up i i would have to find it again but you know i guess i agree with you i guess if the if the barrier is sort of death matches where they're trying to it seems like they're trying to kill each other this seems sort of light but i thought you know ice ribbon is not a death match promotion this is sort of out of the ordinary for them so i thought it i still thought it was very very good Next up was the International Ribbon Tag Team title match. And we had a title change uh, because the Maika Ozaki and Maya Yukihi team defeated uh, the Frank sisters and uh, won the titles. Ozaki got the pin on Mochi Miyagi. Yeah, uh, another excellent match. I think sort of Maika Ozaki is in the same position as um, uh, Abuki Hoshi in that she sort of has appeared for a while to sort of be in the mid card, you know, the sort of large mid card of ice ribbon. But with this, you know, she's gotten some opportunities elsewhere. I think that she really also is building. I think this match was very good helped by the fact that she was in there with Maya, who's one of the best in the company, if not in all of Joshi. Um, so just thought it was a really good match. And I'm very excited to see where this uh, rebel and enemy uh, team can go in terms of having some really strong tag title matches. Yeah, this was insanely fun. It was just like your classic, you know, fast paced, lots of action tag match, lots of pin breakups, that kind of thing, except that it did not overstay its welcome in any way. It was uh, just under 15 minutes, perfect length for the match. I thought the Maya Yukihi and uh, Hiragi Karumi segment uh, was the the best part of the match. I mean, that makes sense, obviously. Uh, but that's probably where it was uh, at its height for me. Uh, but overall, just exactly what I wanted out of this match. And I will say that you talked about it didn't overstay its welcome. I, th- I thought that of the whole show, really. I thought that it was very well paced. It was, you know, it went two and a half hours. You know, sometimes you think of these big shows. You know, this is one of Ice Ribbon's bigger shows of the year. Um, and you think of shows going like three and a half, four hours, 
you know, and sometimes those shows are good if you get enough good, uh, you know, matches on them. But I just thought this was really great. You know, people came out, they had great matches, and they left, and the show was done in two and a half hours. I watched it live. Uh, so it started at 9.30 Eastern time for me, and it was over by midnight, which was really great. Um, so I just have to applaud the whole thing where they put a lot of matches together that were really a lot of fun and very good. But none of them, I don't think any of them on the card really overstayed their welcome. No, that's certainly true. I mean, the longest match was the the six-woman match that we talked about a minute ago. And uh, that one was a lot of fun. It earned uh, its 17 minutes and 30 seconds. So, uh, yeah, couldn't agree more. Uh, the main event for the Ice Infinity title, uh, Suzu Suzuki retained her title against Saori Ano. Uh, she won with a bridging German suplex. I mean, another match I thought that was was really great. I thought really the the top four matches on this card were all very strong. I think this would be a late, you know, sort of late breaking contender for a show of the year, um, just because of how strong the top of the card was. But it's a little bit tricky when you get to shows that are happening on December thirty first because you know votes are already in and things like that. I just think Suzu, you know, obviously so young. That's a lot of the big talk, but is really developing a great mixture of um, sort of wrestling styles and wrestling abilities and that she's able to sort of have hard hitting aspects of her match, but she also has aspects of her matches that she really gets to show off some of her athleticism. And I think that she was well matched with Sayori who is in some ways very similar in that she can sort of go toe to toe at moments, but can also, you know, move very quickly or be very athletic. And I thought it was just a matchup of two very well matched competitors that really meshed well together and had an excellent match and a great main event and sort of a great way to cap off um, ice ribbons, ice ribbons year. And I really love this match. I just thought it was great. Uh, had, everything I want. Uh, you got these two big personalities and they're getting their personalities across during the match. Uh, there was also violence. I mean, I thought this was more brutal than the death match really. Uh, but also I mean, it was well-paced, which everybody knows I like, but it was also, I thought innovative, like, yes, they're doing a lot of this stuff down the stretch where it's like, Oh, the, the one count kick out and the no selling the something, but a lot of these moves and pins that they tried to do, uh, I thought were, uh, very innovative, very fresh, um, you know, like, and not that they don't do these things with some regularity, but the way they put it all together, you know, you had Suzu doing the, like, the Matrix, like, uh, uh, what's that called, where you, like, bend over uh, backwards or whatever. Back, you know what I mean? back bend? Back bend, that sounds good. Uh, to <laughs> duck, you know, that Inziguri or whatever that uh, Sariano uh, was throwing at her. Uh, I loved that. That uh, Ano thing where she did like the, I have no idea what this move is called, but it's like a cattle mutilation uh, and like a straight jacket type hold. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, yes, I don't, I don't know what it's called. Um, well, that was sick. Like that was uh, just a move that I really loved. They did a lot of that. I did. I thought the, the finish, I think they did so much cool stuff and uh, they did it at such a great pace that the the bridging German to finish it off 
felt a little flat uh, and just the way that it was built up to it. But uh, other than that, that's like the only very minor flaw uh, I can find in this match. And uh, Sauri has just quickly become one of my very favorites in the world. That's it. That's all I have to say about this ice ribbon show. Great. Yeah. Great show. Right, Aaron? You, it was. You, it was an excellent you think show. Of the whole show. Yeah. Excellent show. It was an and excellent I, show. And I will, con- I will conclude by saying it is, um, you do have to purchase it on the ice ribbon. Nico, you don't have to be subscribed. And I believe that the, uh, you can buy it, watch it on demand through January 21st. I believe that's still the case. So there is still time. You know, if you heard us talk about it and you want to see the show, there is time to go on the Ice Ribbon Nico and purchase it and watch it for at least another week and a half, I believe. So definitely worth, uh, definitely has my recommendation to go um, and check that out. Okay. Well, those are the big shows that we wanted to talk about. Uh, let's get into the Spark Notes section. Taylor, talk about some other shows that happened over the past couple of weeks. Yeah. So Seedling, uh, sorry. Yeah. So Stardom had um, some shows on the first few days of the year, the second, third, and fourth. Um, I guess the reason why I might have said Seedling is that, Aaron, I don't know if maybe I missed something. I was not on some days, you know, over as we crossed over into 2021. I was not on Twitter a lot. Has there been any follow-up to... Yoshiko and Nanai appearing at the Corican. Not that I'm aware of. I haven't seen anything. Okay. I didn't I haven't seen anything either. I was just wondering whether it just seems very odd to, you know, sort of have this big moment, obviously a moment that had a lot of people talking, including sort of outside the world of Joshi or Stardom fans talking about this event. And now for the last two weeks or so, there really hasn't been they haven't followed it up with anything. Now, I don't know if that's coming up on their next Corican or what the plan is, but you would think that they maybe would have, you know, had some sort of promo that they could have put out or or something like that because it felt like it was very hot. It was sort of a big deal, and now all of a sudden they're just sort of like, well, business as usual because these shows on the second, third, and fourth, um, there wasn't really all too much to them. Um, in my mind. Yeah, but that's just kind of, it's what they have done in the past few years with these shows, just like your regular old house shows. Uh, So, you know, probably they booked these assuming more people would be able to come to them. You know, it's like an easy way to uh, sell tickets because everybody's on holiday. But uh, yeah, not usually anything super newsworthy out of these shows. Yeah, it was just just interesting to me. So not too much going on currently in stardom. Um, Oz has run two shows. They ran their end of the year show where uh, the Mission K4 team of Kaho Kobayashi and Kekaru Sakaguchi beat the Mission, the other Mission K4 team of Akino and Sonoko Kado to win the tag team title. So they are the new tag champions and Mayumi Ozaki beat Hiroya Matsumoto to retain her um, Oz title. And then Kobayashi and Sekiguchi defended successfully their titles for the first time yesterday um, against Itsuki Aoki and Tsubasa Kuragaki. Um, neither of those shows have made tape. I don't know if either of them will make tape. Sometimes... 
um, Oz does these Oz shows do show up later on in time. And I would assume that with two title matches that that 1230 show might appear somewhere, but it has not yet. Uh, Tokyo Joshi in their other news, they had a show today. Um, the big news coming out of that Mirai Mayumi is going to challenge Yuki Kamafuku for the international princess title at the next Korokin, which as we mentioned is going to be on February 11th. That will also feature that Miyu Watanabe and Rika Tatsumi um, title match. Uh, Sendai Girls and Marvelous had their makeup show, the Road to Gaia-ism show uh, that was supposed to be that Korokin before Marvelous had that COVID outbreak. Uh, so what it was, it, it ended up being a 7v7 uh, gauntlet. They started out with uh, singles, you know, a singles match. The winner would advance to face the next person, and the loser would be out. Um, some very interesting stuff. I watched that show earlier today um, for fans of Mika Wada. Um, I would say maybe go in um, knowing that Mika Wada is the first person out of the gauntlet match. Uh, it opens with Mio uh, Momono against Mika. And Mika loses right off the bat. So interesting. We talked a lot about at the end of last year about it would be interesting to see what would happen with Sendai Girls um, now that Mako is heading to NXT UK. But it seems like for the time at least, Mika will not be climbing up the card as she was um, out of this match quite quickly. Um, but overall, a very fun a uh, fun show, you know, the gauntlet really takes up almost the entire running time. They have one other match um, right before that, but the gauntlet takes up about an hour and a half of the show. Um, very long, but you get to see all, all the, really all the roster from Marvelous, all the roster from Sendai Girls and some interesting configurations. So worth checking out. Um, Ice Ribbon, I mentioned they had the show on the 9th in Yokohama. Uh, Sakushi beat Hamako Hoshi to win the IWGQ title. That was a fun match. Um, also, definitely worth checking out the main event of that show. Uh, Seri and Tsukasa Fujimoto versus Ibuki Hoshi and Suzu Suzuki. I thought that this was an excellent match. I think Seri, you know, only wrestled six about six months last year, but she still ended up in my, you know, calculations as pretty close to um, sort of a wrestler of the year candidate, which is pretty amazing considering she only wrestled um, about half the year. Um, so, and this really just continues her great end of 2020 into 2021, um, a match definitely worth checking out. Um, in Actress Girls, the only news there, Micah Ozaki and Tehanma advanced uh, to the tag title finals. They won their tag title tournament semifinal match. Uh, Wave had a show on January 1st uh, that featured Sakura Hirota versus Makoto Shindo for the uh, Regina de Wave. Hirota came away victorious, so she retains that title and will continue as champion. And then Chuckle Pro had a number of shows as we headed into 2021, probably highlighted by the Best Bros versus Reset Asia Dream tag title match. Um, that is one definitely worth going out of your way to check out. It was, I believe, on Chaco Pro 76. Um, just an excellent 
match, really high quality, some really impressive um, stuff, especially considering, you know, they're in this tiny, um, you know, converted pharmacy, uh, some really impressive stuff. The finish is really amazing and definitely worth going back, checking out that is on their YouTube. So um, one to search down is sort of one of the last great matches of 2020 as we continue further into uh, 2021. Sorry, but any match that happened before January one is dead to me. Here's the thing. I am the same. I am the same way because a lot of things um, wave had the wave had the show on December 27th, uh, which happened just before we recorded our last show, which featured uh, Hirota winning the title, but also had a dash uh, Chizako hardcore match, which has been getting really great reviews um, as Wave just posted it. And I have not watched it yet because part of me thinks, well, it happened before uh, 2021, so it may not get watched. Yeah, I just can't do it. Too much too much to watch all the time, so I have to draw these lines somewhere. Uh, okay, we'll talk about some shows that are upcoming. Stardom uh, has a January 11th show at Sendai Pit and then a Corquin show on the 17th. Do you think we should do a, a quick preview of this one? Yeah, let's run down the let's run down the Corquin uh, show. Well, as is customary for their recent shows, they're going to kick it off with a future Stardom title with Saya Ida versus Sayaka Unagi. Uh, I'm not sure I even had in my mind at this point that Unagi was under three years of, of wrestling experience. Yeah. 30, right? Yeah. I didn't either. Um, I'm trying to remember if I even remember her debut in Tokyo Joshi, but obviously I don't because I, you know, didn't know she was under three years. So um, she apparently debuted January 4th, 2019. Wait, January 4th, 2019. <laughs> Yeah, she's at, under at, two years. At the show that you were at? No, I I was at... Oh, January 2020. 4th, you were there 2020. Oh, gosh. Yes. I was like, 2019, that was last year. <laughs> last year was <laughs> two years ago. Um, yeah, wow. I don't even... I have no uh, recollection of that. Yeah, so... But yeah, I think she's like about 30 years old, right? If I'm not crazy yeah 1989 30 she's 31 wow well um i mean do we do we think she wins here i don't think so uh hmm i don't know Ida winning the title is like strange to me so i wonder what the purpose of that is either like they do see something in Ida and kind of want to get behind her or they want to transition the title to someone else so i guess this will tell us a lot about what what the truth of that is um that's very true Thanks. Uh, Azumi versus, uh, is it listed as Kaori Yonayama for the high-speed title? Yeah, when I first read this, when the title was announced, I, I, my first thought was, oh, why is Kaori getting another high-speed title match? Except I realized technically she hasn't had one. Um, Goki and Death had one, and I guess Kaori... Um, is someone different. Um, so it it is a bit concerning to me that 
there are so few challengers for this title that the last three challengers will have been the same person twice and someone from another company. And part of me actually thought, I actually thought of this last night as I was, I was thinking about uh, looking at the card and thinking about this. Do you think there's any world in which part of the deal with Nanai is that at the end of this whole thing, Seedling takes the high-speed title from Stardom? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, they do seem to be like using the the future of Stardom title more, and maybe in a way that the high speed title was sometimes used. So yeah, that could make sense to me. Because part of me is okay. Azumi is going to win this match. I would I would think ninety nine percent likelihood. Then then who? challenges her i guess i mean it could be like natsupoi but it feels like the high speed title is a sort of lower card like it it doesn't feel very much like a prestigious title in any way even though i think azumi has done well with it and had very good matches it just i don't really know what purpose it really serves especially when you would think Seedling might be interested in it because every show that they do, they have a specific high-speed match. They already sort of have that division built and are doing something with something that is specifically high-speed, whereas in stardom, high-speed has just sort of become, well, these people are sort of fast, I guess. Um, But even more than that, it's like somebody who is kind of in the mid card that we want to elevate a little bit, I think, you know, other than when they had like uh death have it for there for a little bit, but it was like, you know, Hazuki held this title for quite some time, you know, as they tried to uh, push her up the card and now you have Azumi. Um, I don't really know what to think of the Riho high speed title um, reign, but yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly a strange title. Yeah, and it isn't even a sort of native stardom title, so it isn't like them giving away some title that they, you know, created and built up. So I don't know, probably doesn't happen, but that was sort of my thought was, well, this would be a good opportunity to also, you know, go to Seedling, and if you're trying to, you know, whatever you're trying to work through in terms of who wins, who loses, what matches – up to you get blah 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 i don't know maybe that's a way to sort of give them something else that isn't you know that enables you to maybe get a little bit more in some other way and also sort of use this title in a way where now you're not having you know because the other option would be they just go well the high speed is whatever or it doesn't get defended um so i don't know just an interesting idea that i that i thought of well, yeah, they also had they already had Meiho Suzuki challenge for it, so you could bring that match back and have her ultimately win it or whatever. Yeah, interesting. Okay, uh, Boy versus Konami. Any thoughts on that match? Uh, should be a uh, it, it should be a good match. I'm interested to see. These are sort of two people who I'm not quite sure where they fit. Uh, in terms of their slot on the card, you know, Konami obviously was sort of 
hot off the turn uh, into 08 Otai, but now I'm not entirely sure, you know, sort of where her slot is. Is she the leader of 08 Otai? Is she just sort of a mid-card, you know, number for the group? And the same with Natsupoi, where came in as the big debut and now sort of feels the least established. You know, Micah is getting a title match on this card. You've had Himika already have a title match, and she sort of establishes the sort of big giant of the group. Um, So two people, interesting to see who comes out victorious and what that sort of does for them in terms of their booking going forward. Yeah, we'll just say like both these singles matches here. We have Nuts Boy Konami and Tom versus Starlight Kid. And it's like these, I always get excited about these like lower card singles matches uh, in like modern or current stardom. And they never really get what you want. They don't really get the time. They don't really get the focus to where these matches really come together. Uh, They all just kind of feel like they're thrown on there to have, you know, the number of matches they want to have on the show. So a little hard for me to get excited about either of these matches. Yeah. It sort of feels like that's partly a throwback to, you know, a few years ago in stardom where largely all the big names of the company were routinely at the top of the card all the time. And your first three matches on every card were like, here's, you know, all our rookies, and our lower cart, you know, and here's Kaori Yonayama working with, you know, four rookies or something like that. And that was really like the first three matches of a lot, a lot, a lot of these stardom cards. And that sort of feels like a holdover to that in terms of they're sort of like, oh, it's a third match on the card. It's not really all that important where you could probably use it for some of these people to to help them. But I think they're still stuck in these structurally in sort of saying, well, these undercard matches, they're they're sort of not all that important. And that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because then they become not important. So, yeah. Uh, then we have a an over-the-top rope rules match, uh, elimination match. One member out eliminates the entire team. Mayu Batani and Ruaka versus B Priestley and Saki Kashima versus Shuri and Himika versus Momo Watanabe and Saya Kamitani. Um, do you see a, what's the purpose of this? Is the winner, the winning team going to get a tag title shot or is uh, a winner going to emerge that will challenge for one of the top two titles later in the show? Well, I don't know that there would be any, just because it is the one, you know, if your one member is out, then the whole team is out. So I don't know that I see the value in, you know, getting a singles title. I think it would probably be, you know, someone probably pins Saki Kashima and challenges for the tag title. I mean, that seems the most logical um, thing to me. I mean, the booking to me, based on the teams, who's in it, you know, I think probably Ruaka gets pinned. Um, You know, someone like Momo gets thrown over the top rope. And then, you know, Suri pins Saki or something like that. And then they get a tag title match. That's the booking that seems most straightforward and obvious to me based on the teams that are in it and the rules of the match. 
Um, I don't think you announce, oh, it's over the top rope rules unless someone's going over the top rope. Um, so that that seems like the most obvious path to me. Yeah, I agree. And the team that makes the most sense to challenge is Shuri and Himeka. That's like the the only like real team in the uh, in the match here. Um, and then we got the two top title matches uh, for the Wonder of Stardom title, the white belt. We have Julia versus Natsuko Tora. I believe this is actually a no rules match. Interesting because the lang well the translated language on. Um, the stardom website is no foul arbit arbitrage. Um, <laughs> and I don't know what that means to me. It's, uh, to me, it almost, I don't know. It, it seems like it would be harder to enter inter- to, um, to have no interference than have no rules. So I guess no rules probably makes, makes more sense. Um, yeah, yeah. well, and it's a Natsuko Toro match, so no rules. Uh, makes sense, I suppose. I will say you hated this match, but I thought they had a great match in the finals of the Cinderella tournament. So I'm not gonna uh, tune out on this one. I'm gonna keep my my optimism uh, up for this match. You're right. I didn't like it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I just think you know, saying that if it if it is no rules, I just think that this is going to be sort of like a budget. Oz Academy style, you know, Oedo Tai is going to be in the ring the whole time. It's going to be sort of like, uh, okay. And then Julia's Julia's going to win. I don't think either of us think that Natsuko is going to win unless maybe you do. Uh, No, I do not believe that. I mean, also, I mean, this isn't a giveaway, but I think on the next show, um, Natsuko is opening the show facing Ruaka. Now I guess she could win the title and that would be an easy victory um, to give her, but it seems very unlikely that they would take the title off of Julia at this point. Though Natsuko, Natsuko did get a pinfall over Julia in an elimination match on one of the, the one, two show. Although that seems even more to me, that seems more in the favor of she's not going to win because then she sort of has that, you know, oh, I did pin you. So then when Julia pins her, it's sort of, well, now, you know, we're even, I beat you in the singles match. Yeah, I hate that kind of booking too. I just think it's so pointless, but no one asked me, I suppose. Uh, the main event, the red title, Utami Hayashishita defending against Micah. Uh, I don't think there's any chance of Micah winning, but they've had some matches that I really like. So I anticipate this being another good match. Yeah, and as I've said, I think Micah has you know, improved month over month, week over week, whatever you want to call it in stardom. So I'm very interested to see in a big spot, you know, at a cork and how, um, how she does in this match, what I, th- I think could be a very good match. I think this is actually, you know, I don't think there's a lot of matches on this card or at least big matches on this card where the outcome is in question. But I think that this is sort of the, you know, we talked about for a number of months, these Corkins that had one, they were sort of one match shows, you know, they had one title match or they had one sort of quote unquote big match. And I think that the, this is more the type of card that I think of for drawing at Corkin, you know, a number of title matches, a number of big matches, the singles matches, even down the card, 
you know, they might not get the time they deserve, but they're at least feel sort of big. Um, but this is sort of the big, this is the type of card that I expect from Corkin. Even if they are running bigger venues, they can still run the bigger matches here while also running meaningful matches that might not have very surprising outcomes, but they're still meaningful matches at Corican to draw people in. And I think if I read this correctly, I think that the Corican has already sold out, you know, after the announcement of this card. So that seems to point to that people are interested in this, a sort of bigger card than they have had at Corican in a number of months. So people are calling about everything at Cork when a sellout these days. It doesn't really seem to matter how many tickets are sold. So we will see. Uh, they'll also be at uh, Adiano Osaka Arena uh, 2 for a doubleheader on the 24th. Uh, what else is going on in the next couple of weeks, Taylor? So Seedling has a show tomorrow. I think it'll. I think that show is going up somewhere. It may be up. It may be going on Samurai. I think I'm not entirely sure. Uh, that will be headlined by a non-title rematch of the Best Friends versus Yoshiko and Seri, um, celebrating Arisa Nakajima's 15th year in wrestling, um, which is this year. So that, of course, their first one. This one is not for the titles, uh, so maybe the stakes are a little bit lower, but their first match back in November was excellent. Uh, I went four and a half stars, so that should be very good. Um, Ice Ribbon has a Corican show coming up on January 23rd. Um, if everything goes right, hopefully we will cover that show in detail on our next episode. Um, that is headlined by three title matches. Uh, Maya Yukihi and Maika Osaki are taking on Tehanma and Rina Shingaki of Joint Army in the tag title match. Uh, Ram Kaichao is taking on Cherry and Matsuya Uno in the triangle ribbon match. And the headliner, the Ice Infinity title match, is Suzu Suzuki and Sukasha Fujimoto. They had that excellent match when Suzu came back from sort of her um, rebirth, um, which was really, really good. So I expect this one to maybe be even a little bit better um, with the title on the line and Suzu having you know, a number of months under her belt as champion. So that should be an excellent show. Marvelous has another joint show with Sendai Girls coming up on the 12th. Um, some fun matches there. Leo Asaka, who is the lone male roster member of Marvelous, is taking on Asuka. Uh, so that should be a good match. And then the main event, Rin Katakura, Mio Momono, and Meiho Shizuki against Shihiro Hashimoto, Dash Chizako, and Mika Iwata. So that sounds like a really good match. That is on the Marvelous Pass Market pay-per-view um, service, um, and that will be on the 12th. Wave has a show on the 16th featuring a Yumi Oka and Mio Momono title defense against Rin Katakura and Itsuki Aoki. Um, and Choco Pro seems like they're, they're settling into a schedule of uh, two shows on the weekends. They did a show um, yesterday. They did a show on the 10th, and they have one on the 11th, and then coming up the 16th and 17th and 23rd and 24th. So that is everything coming up in the world of Joshi. 
All right. So hopefully we'll be able to talk about that ice ribbon show and then probably the stardom cork one on our next episode, if I had to guess. Uh, that is that sounds like that ice ribbon show? I believe it's a Corican, so I believe it should be it should be airing live. I or I certainly would hope it airs live, but but I will have to check and see. Okay, well, hopefully uh, we'll be able to watch that before we record next time. So, uh, other than that, just make sure you're following us on Twitter at JBomb Audio. I'm at Aaron Like the Car. Taylor's at Tay Mambo. Subscribe to the show. Give us a five star rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. Tell a friend about the show. Uh, and if you are inclined to donate to the show, you can do so at redcircle.com slash shows slash jumping dash bomb dash audio. That's it for us. Uh, we will see you next time. Bye bye. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.